Welcome to The Pestle. Reviewing and breaking down the movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Goose and Maverick. Let's kick the tires and light the fires. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Pestle. Today's show is sponsored by Wayland Industries. The future has never been brighter. Wayland Industries. It's a good investment. I, I think, think so, yeah. It'll take you places. Yeah. We should trust them. We absolutely should. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? I am Wes. And I'm Todd. We are filmmakers and actors here in town, and we like to talk about movies. Absolutely. We like to take two different points of view here. Wes is more of the the professional getting paid to make films uh, side. Quote, unquote. Director slash filmmaker. And, and I, myself, am more of the consumer of said product so we have two different two different uh, points of view when, when we talk about these movies and he does undersell himself a little bit he's a great producer and editor and he knows what he's doing when he's putting together a project so uh, you're too kind my friend never that yeah and so hopefully throughout the process um we will do a, do a deep dive so that you get a little bit more insight into the movie making process, as the intro says. And if we can just walk away with one or two cool ideas about filmmaking in general, then I think that's a win. We try to keep it to the point with as little off topic and fluff as possible. As little as possible. However, sometimes we we do go we astray. go off we go off off topic here a little bit. One thing. Uh, in every episode, we want to make sure that everyone knows that there is a spoiler alert. Whenever we talk about these movies, we try to uh, um, we try to lead in making sure that people um, who haven't seen these movies understand that we're going to be talking about very specific things about them, and we don't want to ruin movies for people. That's right. From beginning to end, you should expect to hear every part of this movie. Even if we don't cover it, there's a good chance we're going to talk about the ending and what it means. Yeah. And Todd's phone is amazing. That was my watch, actually. It's telling you, me to go to bed. You know why? It's, called, it's because he's an athlete. And he's <laughs> literally regulated every point of his day. My watch, yeah. That's awesome. Well, you know what? I'm ignoring it. Because tonight, we are talking about Interstellar. This is my personal favorite movie of all time. Yeah. And wow. So That's saying a lot. It really is. I have seen... <laughs> Every person's share of movies. Multiple times. Multiple How many times, times did you see this in the theater? I've seen it seven times to date. And it's, <laughs> in its original run, I watched it six times. Yeah. And I will yeah. tell you more about that. Let's, let's yeah. get a quick clip. Yeah, let's do that. Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. Cooper, you were good at something, and you never got a chance to do anything with it. I'm sorry. Here's a little synopsis about the film, assuming you all have watched it, but if not, spoilers. Uh, So a team of explorers travels through a wormhole that appears magically in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. Now, it's directed by Christopher Nolan. He directed uh, the Batman trilogy with Christian Bale. Inception and Dunkirk is premiering in July of 2017 this year, which looks amazing, by the way. I'm super excited. Oh, about man. That. Yeah. Can't wait to do that one. Uh, so it's written by Christopher Nolan and John, his brother, Jonathan, and they usually do all their writing together. And there's an amazing cast in this movie. Matthew McConaughey is Cooper or Coop. And Hathaway is Brand. Jessica Chastain is Murph. And you have Michael Caine, John Lithgow. You have a list of people. Um, Casey Affleck, Matt Damon uh, is in this movie. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Because you don't see him for most of the movie. Yeah, that was a really well-kept secret. Yeah. I had no idea he was coming. Me either. And when he he arose from, (laughs) from cryo and I saw him, I was like, Oh my gosh! What what just happened? what just happened? <laughs> this this movie is just taking crazy turns. Um, so yeah, that that's basically the, the synopsis, and um, uh, you know, craziness ensues. So I did. I watched this six times in the, in theaters. One because I love Christopher Nolan, and it's a very I love science fiction. Um, I love everything this movie is talking about. I, it was very thought provoking for me. And seeing it in IMAX 
for me was one of my most incredible experiences that I've had watching a film. Um, it was shot in 65 millimeter, which older movies that used to be shot more regularly on film were shot in 35 millimeter. And so this one was shot in 65. That gives you twice as resolution. You're going to get a lot more uh, clarity so that whenever you blow it up on a bigger screen, such as the IMAX, then it looks that much better. And what happens is they shoot it on 65 and they project it in 70 millimeter and that extra five millimeters goes to the soundtrack. They magnetically uh, put it onto the film reel. Really? Yeah. And so it's pretty incredible because <laughs> to project it in film in IMAX weighs hundreds of pounds. Um, I think they said something in the neighborhood of 700 pounds. I would, what? I'll double check it and we'll put a link on the website, but okay. it's insanely heavy and takes a lot of work and effort just to project this thing. Oh my God. And so I'm wow. really fascinated with film, celluloid specifically. I think it's a really organic and unique thing that we just don't see as much anymore. And I really wanted to take the opportunity while it was in theaters to see it in that way because I was so caught up with it that I didn't think there was a better way to watch it than in IMAX specifically because Christopher Nolan shot this with a lot of shots. It felt like to me at least half the movie was shot in the IMAX format, which is a little bit taller than widescreen. And so whenever you go to see it in IMAX, you're getting much more space and it's that much more immersive. Mm. It feels like you're in space yeah. and you're in the black hole and, uh, it's just so much more engage, engaging and engrossing for me. Oh, man, I wish I would have seen it. I could only imagine what it felt like in the Tesseract watching it there. Oh. You just feel like you're in it. <laughs> I was there. I was with the fifth dimensional beings. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That is crazy. <laughs> it was amazing. And so I did end up watching it four times in the IMAX and twice at the Alamo Draft House Ritz, which was still showing it in 70 millimeter, just not necessarily in the IMAX. You're not getting the full. That's right. But they're cropping it a little bit. Right. But it's still projected in 70 millimeter film, which is one of the cool things. Again, we talk, keep talking about the Alamo Draft House, but they do have a culture just for filmmakers, I believe, mm -hmm. or for film lovers, I should say. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And so. And you were, you were telling me the other day about uh, the, the depth of film as opposed to digital um, it, it's, it has, it has a richer color aspect to it or, or what That's, can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So shooting on film versus something like your DSLR and a lot of, uh, lower end cameras that most of us consumers use has so much more color depth. The, the resulting image, the reason why Hollywood likes to shoot on these super expensive cameras and these, and on film is because of that depth in post, you get to do so much more color grading and a lot more interesting things. Whereas if you try to start correcting and doing interesting things with these lower end color, uh, cameras, then what it had, you know, it's just not, it's just not there. You'll start destroying the film, your highlights, the brighter part of your image becomes blown out a lot easier. Your low mm -hmm. lights, there's just not as much dynamic range, which is the measure of stops. Um, and I'll think of a smarter way to say that. Sure. Um, but bas basically, how much you can contain in, within the image from the highlight, the brightest part of your image, to the darkest part of your image. And so whenever you're outside with your iPhone and you're trying to shoot something from your car and you're like framing yourself and suddenly the, out the outdoors is blown out, it's because you don't have the same dynamic range. It can't capture as much light and darkness mm -hmm. as some of these more expensive cameras in film is very forgiving with the highlights when you're shooting on digital you might try to capture something and you can't quite get this outdoor shot because you want his face within the exposure but then the sky's blown out suddenly it's not this beautiful blue sky that you right. thought you were getting everything's white yeah and with film you don't really have that issue quite as much if you if you shoot that and even if initially it looks blown out you can still recover that within the film itself and so it has this amazing ability to recover what looks like it was clipped um or peaked out and the detail is still there hiding in the film so so essentially the the extremes are forgiving very yes. so so when we were talking about this i i had mentioned that um because uh, i'm a musician and that that tape as opposed to recording in the box digitally is is this is very similar so you know you have a you have a 
a, a sound ceiling and a sound floor on tape. And same, same thing if you're recording digitally. The only difference is that if you peak, um, in, if you peak digitally, it doesn't sound good. It sounds like, like just static essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you ever heard static, it's, it's very it's, grating. Yeah. I mean, a little bit you can get away with and maybe it, it's, it's like, you know, depending on the song, it'll work, but n- not really that much. But if you do that with tape, it's not only do you have a higher ceiling and a lower floor, so you have much more dynamic range sonically, but if you peak on tape, it's, it actually sounds good a lot of times. It wow. adds a little bit of depth. I mean, the Beatles did it all the time on purpose. Um, if you it, listen to, I mean, most of their later work, especially, um, uh, they were modeling a lot of stuff. Uh, there was one story where they were recording... Um, at uh, Abbey Road next in a, in a room next to where Pink Floyd was recording mm-hmm. and they would the Beatles would actually listen through the walls at what Pink Floyd was doing oh, and really? they would yeah and it would sound differently listening through the walls so they'd try to emulate a little bit of their sound and in doing so they they'd use a lot of peaking and you can hear that especially in a lot of their their later stuff it's just it's amazing especially when you know like Paul screams and things like that and you hear that grit that's what that is but it sounds awesome because it's all on tape that's amazing. Yeah. And what's also great about shooting on film is that it's very forgiving. It's all granular. There's, there's all these little tiny crystals. Yeah. And so it's very forgiving on people's faces. So it looks really good on skin tones. Oh. And as opposed to digital, which has the same resolution depending on you know which sensor, which camera we're talking about. But most of them, at their best, have about the same resolution but it's so much more precise and unforgiving on your skin that as an actor, you got to look forward to being shot on film. <laughs> that's amazing, man. Oh, that's, that's awesome to learn that. So what was your takeaway? How do you feel about Interstellar? What's your general? Um, so uh, I love this movie. Uh, I mean, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm a geek when it comes to sci-fi stuff. I'm also very picky about it. Um, I mean, you know, I I can go into a sci-fi movie and be pretty um, blown away pretty easily, but I can also be turned off pretty easily. Um, uh, This movie in particular is amazing because I love story, uh, just like um, most people do. But like um, having stories within stories and, you know, you go in and you see this movie and you see that it's about space and, and everything. And, and, but then you find out it's about so much more. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, but it was, it, it did such a good job of making me fall in love with the characters and identify with the characters and, and made me laugh and it made me cry. And it, it, it brought everything in between. And, um, and it also just made me wonder what's coming next. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that just happened. They just really did that. And this wasn't like a, you know, you hear about wormholes or you hear about black holes or whatever, but seeing it created and seeing them interact with these things that we, we know exist, you know, scientifically, but we haven't seen you know, we haven't seen wormholes, but we mathematically know they exist or, you know, or, or think that they exist. Same with black holes. You know, we can't see it because it's black, but they're actually interacting with these things. And then, you know, going to a different dimension in the end, uh, you know, we don't, we know there's a fifth dimension. We've never been there, you know, but they created this thing and you're seeing it visually and they're interacting with it. It was just, just amazing. And their, their play with gravity, is so so good so good in every every way i it has been my favorite movie for a long time i'm still going to say that it is as wow. well uh, i I, did not I think know that. i think that that there are others that r- rival it rival it and it just depends on my mood of whether <laughs> or not this is it or not but i don't own a whole lot of movies I know you own a massive library. This one I went out and absolutely and bought. I I just had to have it so that I could watch it anytime, whenever I wanted, and I knew that I I owned it. You know, um, so yes, I love this movie. It's fantastic. That's awesome. I had no idea it was actually your favorite movie. Yeah. Oh, you didn't? No. Oh wow. I, I mean, we'd seen it enough together. <laughs> <I know. laughs> uh, I've actually yeah. never watched this 
in any other place than the theater. Mm. I saved that experience for, <laughs> I just think it's the only way for me that I want to experience that. At some point I might break down, but they re-released it last year. So I got to see it in, in the IMAX one more time. And I just hope maybe every year or two they, they keep that up so that... Like, so that you can watch it, yes. even though you own it. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> You're ridiculous. You're ridiculous. Uh, yeah, no, same here. I, there's yeah. so many thoughts and ideas that they communicate in this film, and all the characters are lovable. I love Tars. I love Case. Oh, man. Tars is the best. Just uh, the design the, of them, like, we're going to make a box, and we're going to make you love it. <laughs> They were going to give it so much personality. <laughs> I just uh, when when I saw when when he leaned over him, at, you know, like when he gets caught at the beginning, mm. and he leans over him, and he's he's like, "Tell him to be quiet." I'm like, "What is this thing? This is a a rectangle. It's like you know, take. Oh, this is a marine. Okay, wow. It, it, it was just brilliant. Brilliant. Just brilliant. I love, and it's so tactile because Nolan is very. Uh, practical when in creating his effects so i love that they created mm-hmm. this actual box yes with that the cast and crew could interact with and you can light it and now you're interacting with this this special effect yeah that i think a lot of other movies would just leave it for a visual effect and do it in post mm-hmm. create a bunch of cg yeah and you lose so much and staging and lighting and blocking with your actors and and all the lighting nuances that just happen on the fly yeah, and what makes him a character is that, like, like you know, in a, a lot of other space movies, there's a computer they talk to. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's just it's an inanimate, inanimate, like, like you know, voice. Yep. But they're t- even even when they're in the ship, he becomes part of the ship. He's laying down in the in between the two pilots, and he's he's there talking to them. And so they're never like talking to this thing you can't see. You, they're lighting it, so it is a character, like you said, and it it just makes you fall in love with it even even more and it's the it's the it is also the comic relief yes he's got so many great punchlines but i've never really thought about you're right in most sci-fi movies they do tend to have uh some voice something they're talking to whether it's the ship or whether it's a robot like on lost in space the Mm -hmm. will robinson family or the robinsons um sunshine has the computer that just kind of runs through the the central ship itself the ai Everything seems that every sci-fi that would be an interesting case study just to kind of break down yeah. and analyze various machines and alternative intelligences that the characters interact, how they use them, what their interactions are like. Yeah, that's really cool. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I, I was emotional when when they let uh, Tars go, or was it Case? Case they let Case go into the in the black hole first yeah. before, or Tars goes into the black Tar- hole. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, they yeah, blew yeah. up Case. I thought you were talking about. Yeah, Tars goes in. Uh, I was a little like, oh. What? Like losing, oh yes. no, no! <laughs> oh man! Yes, and that yeah. scene is when you were talking earlier about what's going to happen next. That was my thought. I was like, "Oh crap, we're about to lose Coop and Tars now." Yeah, um, and the movie's going to end. And where do we go from here? Now yeah, we're right. just going to follow Anne Hathaway and see what happens from there. Right. Instead, we follow him into it, into the black hole, and from there, everything gets so weird, and you're not. You're not oriented. You're trying to orient yourself like, where are we, especially after he ejects from the ship. Mm-hmm. And you're just trying to figure out what the heck is happening right now. And, and I think it's a visual language that he does to affect, which is to kind of confuse the viewer in order to tell them you don't know where you are because this character doesn't know where he is. He's still orienting himself. Therefore, I cannot orient you yet. Yeah. Um, and you get led into the secret as the character is. And he really captures that incredibly well. And yeah, I think it's just a really great filmmaking technique to mm-hmm. make the audience experience what the character is experiencing. Yeah, that's brilliant. Such Agreed. A, Agreed. Such an amazing dude. And what's also really cool is all of the work that went into creating that black hole and a lot of the science around the film in general. Mm-hmm. I can do some believe. research on that, right? I, the, how they created that? No, uh, it's the, the, the lighting and everything like they actually like, I think about 60% of it, 70% of it was actually real that they filmed. And then they did layer, obviously they had some effects over it and everything, mm-hmm. but the actual circle, like the black circle and, and the beginnings of the outline is actually real that they filmed. 
Yeah, yeah. And then they created a bunch of layers, I think like 12 or 13 different layers of, of effects on top of it. Whoa, 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 tell me more about this. Yeah, I mean, that it. <laughs> so, I mean, so uh, Kip Thorne mm-hmm. is the guy that, um, the scientist that, because Chris, when Christopher Nolan was going to do this, he said, okay, I want to get it as accurate as I possibly can. Obviously, it's a movie, and, you know, there's only so much that they can do. They're not going to go to a black hole. Right, right. Okay. Um, but so, you know, they went to an actual scientist and, and said, this is what we want to do. How do we do this so that it's as accurate as possible? So things like, um, you know, the wormhole being a sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you, when you talk to, if you think about a wormhole, you don't necessarily think of it as a sphere, but they explain why it is a, a sphere, uh, in the movie. And, you know, some of, some of the, um, some of the, the conversation, but like from the scientists, uh, I've heard people say that they don't like it cause it's too informative. You know, like when the scientists talked about why the wormhole is a sphere and not a, a flat circle, there were people who there didn't, were people who like, didn't like that. Yeah, yeah, because they were like, scientists don't talk like that. Well, you know, 99% of the people watching this movie are not scientists <laughs> uh, and want to know why it's a sphere and not a, a, just a circle. So essentially he explains that, you know, a wormhole is a connection between two points in space. So if you draw two dots on a, on a piece of paper, you fold the piece of paper in half, and then you put a hole in through the two dots. You put the two dots together, you put a hole in it, you're looking at, and that's what a wormhole is. So it bends space so that you go in one, one hole and come out the other very far away. Um, but because it bends space in half, you're able to get there very, very quickly. Well, that explanation is in two dimensions. Two dimensions is flat, like a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Three dimensions is you and us. We're interacting. It's, it's, it has depth to it. So what is a, he says, what is a, f- a flat circle in a third dimension? It's a sphere, like a ball. So that's why there's, the wormhole is a sphere. Well, that whole explanation that you know, people, some people are like, ah, you know, they don't talk like that or whatever. I don't care. That was a cool <laughs> explanation, and now I understand that. Um, and then uh, when they're doing um, research about the black hole, it's, it's, there's so much unknown about it. I mean, we, we, we can't see it. We, you know, we can track black holes because we can see uh, planets far away speeding up very quickly and then making huge turns very quickly and going out and slowing down and then coming back in. Looping around. Looping around like one singular point that's invisible. So we can't see anything there, but we wouldn't see anything there. Now we have um, evidence of, we have seen evidence of black holes eating. So you can see, um, you can see like there, these massive dust clouds getting sucked into a certain area, like uh, this one little spot. Um, we can, we've seen, um, uh, plasma bursts from black holes or what we think are from black holes from, from supermassive black holes at the center of, of galaxies. Um, and, and so, but we haven't actually seen them. So in order to make this thing, um, you know, Kip Thorne advised them and they, they did as best they could to, to say, this is what this would probably look like if we were close enough to it to actually see what was, what was around it. So you never see the actual black hole, but you see what it's feeding on. And that's the event horizon, which is the edge of it. So as the, as the, the light or the dust or, or the, whatever it is, is being drug in, you're only able to see it at the edge because everything inside gets sucked in, including light. So if light gets sucked in, you can't see it because it's being sucked in. So I, I mean, I could go oh, yeah. on for a while, uh, but before I do, we should probably... We should probably yes. just continue on. <laughs> but, but my point is they didn't just make this movie, write this movie and make it. They wrote it, did a ton of research, fact-checked everything. Yeah, and one of the incredible parts about the black hole was that that was all generated based on equations that Kip Thorne, their mm. scientist, came up with. And along the way, I think he made some really cool discoveries about black holes that he didn't know before um, because they... Like Todd said, I mean, we don't have an ability to see what they look like. And so in creating these algorithms and running them through uh, the computer generating system, they were able to finally visualize and found some surprises. And we'll we'll drop a link in the uh, show notes so that you can take a look at this and some of the other things that we'll talk about, um, which 
you can find out the pestlepodcast.com slash interstellar. Yeah. Now, another really cool thing was the visual effects. Yes, they created TARS and CASE and they made these real things. But another really amazing thing that they did was to light and use actual projectors so that the actors could see outside and see the world that they were now flying into. So instead of just saying, hey, there's some green or blue screen outside your window, imagine that's an icy, rocky world. Yeah. <laughs> they actually created the those worlds in pre-production and then projected them onto the screen. And what that allowed them to do was not only give your actors something to react to and to focus on, but now you're also getting this light that can help light your scene and it can also create all the natural reflections in your ship. Mm-hmm. And so now everything looks real. It looks holistic. It looks like you're in an actual physical place because of how everything in the environment from the cast to the metal to the light that's incoming, it's all real and it's yeah. all reactive. Wow. And that's, that's awesome. huge. Yeah. It's huge. And I mean, I go to this movie and I'm, I'm like, oh, where did they shoot this at? Yeah. You know, and some of these things, nowhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a right. soundstage. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And That's I awesome. love also that, you know, he created the spaceship. And there's a really cool behind the scenes on the Blu-ray that you can see Christopher Nolan himself directing the ship because they have it on hydraulics. And he's got the steering no. wheel down below. Wow. And he knows what the shot is going to look like. And so he's literally steering in. The ship is reacting in real time to what he's doing so that he can get the shot exactly the way he wants. Dude, that's so cool. That is so cool. (laughs) We're geeking out right now, for sure. (laughs) And so I love Interstellar for for all those reasons. It's shot on film. It's beautifully written. But one of the cool things I really wanted to do a deep dive in was the theme of the movie. And there's a lot of themes. But I feel like at the core of it is this idea of evolution and what humans have done up to this point to evolve and what progress or evolution from here looks like. And I've kind of dubbed it evolution versus love evolution because I think that's what's at the heart of the film. And in doing that, you they're able to do a lot of really interesting things for one I think along the way, he's redefining the nature of God. Whereas before, it's been this omnipotent creator that's always been and always will be. But in the movie, he redefines that as a man-based thing that we can become instead of this omniscient or transcendent being. Instead of praying to something, hoping that it's going to deliver you, deliver yourself. Exactly. Instead of this religious God, now we have a more scientific, evolutionary-based God. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of interesting things that I think support this theme and my view of of this movie, because this is me. I haven't seen anybody else come up with this or uh, throw out any of these notes. So, Take it all with a grain of salt. If you disagree, I'd love to hear. Make a comment and give me your your hypothesis. But in the meantime, so we're gonna we're we're gonna explore this. One of the first things that I noticed walking out of the movie the first time I had this question: This doesn't make sense. There's what's called a bootstrap paradox, which means in this movie specifically, man saved itself. So mm-hmm. it'd be like saying, "Oh, I." I'm getting shot by a bullet, but the me from the future steps in and pushes me out of the way of the bullet. Well, if, how does that happen? It's circular logic, right? Yeah. One has to precede the other in order to be true. And so there's a really interesting workaround. And I think what he's talking about, um, and you, sorry, what you're talking about is if there, if we placed the wormhole there, Right. Is this what we're talking about? Like, yes. how did we place the wormhole there if we hadn't gone through it already? How did we place the wormhole there? How did we create a tesseract? Right. How did we become able to evolve into anything? Right. If it necessitated us, us first going being through. saved yeah, yeah. by ourselves. Right, exactly. It becomes a circular issue. And, and you have a theory for this? I do. Oh, uh, okay. Let's keep going. 
I apologize for the interruption. No, thank you for clarifying. I just wanted, yeah, I wanted to clarify it within the context of the film because that, that, that is a question for me as well. No, that's really good. I get caught up in my head sometimes and I jump three steps. No, so that's good. I need someone to ground me. <laughs> I'm here for you, my friend. And so walking out of the movie the first time, I was just really struck with this issue, but I have so much respect for Christopher Nolan that I immediately the next day went back to watch it again to see what else I could glean because I think he's a really smart filmmaker and he wouldn't paint himself into a corner quite that way the dark knight rises is a whole other issue but for this movie i really believed in him and so watching the movie the second time something really struck me right off the bat which was the use of an organ that's a very large theme throughout the movie and it's not everywhere it's only in very specific places Mm -hmm. and i think if you watch it with the organ in mind you'll be struck by some of these themes that start to pop out um first thing that made me realized the organ was significant was that it's historically thought of as a religious instrument. That's something you heard at church. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a really strong religious connotation, but there's also some scientific significance. Um, And I stole this off Wikipedia and quote, along with the clock, it was considered one of the most complex human made mechanical creations before the industrial revolution. Unquote. And so there are other mechanical things like the Antikythera mechanism that are incredible, but those things did not stand the test of time. And we will use the organ. It's still standing. It's still being used. And it's still, and it's kind of deviated maybe from the amazing scientific uh, instrument that it was. And now it's really strongly associated with that. And so we're kind of redefining where it's being used and how. Um, It still has a place in our society. We still use clocks to tell time. That's an incredibly complicated thing Mm -hmm. that we've been using for quite a while. Um, And this film is thematically challenging us to leave these things behind for something better. The film ends telling us that we evolved to fifth-dimensional beings where time no longer exists as we know it. Clocks will be irrelevant and not useful. Hence why they built the Tesseract, mm-hmm. um, because they couldn't find themselves around in time, because time really lost its meaning. Right. It's infinite for these guys. It's and, a valley you can crawl into and a mountain you, you can climb up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And therefore, love will be our new religion, because love transcends space and time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a number of ways that we see this played out throughout the film, whether we're talking about uh, the relationship with Coop and his daughter Murph. Um, or even more specifically, the naming conventions used in the film itself. Let's take Coop, for instance. Why did he come down for a while? I don't know. Maybe the sun cooked its brain or it was looking for something. What? Maybe a large flat blade. Maybe some kind of signal? Socially responsible, dude. I drive a combine. Can't we just let it go? It wasn't hurting anybody. This thing needs to learn how to adapt, Murph. Like the rest of us. Wow. And so we see Coop actually starts on one side, and he's going to be our method of taking us from this old way of thinking into the new way of thinking. So as we follow Coop, that'll be us, humanity, represented in our transition. And so Coop starts on one side of the practical evolution versus transcendent love argument. He had a this-is-the-way-things-are mentality. He said, and what's really interesting about that specific scene is that I think we see it again later in the movie because you have this thing in the sky that isn't really serving its purpose. And Coop says, I'm going to take that and I'm going to repurpose it for what I think it should be used for. Mm -hmm. And then you think about later in the movie, as he falls into the black hole, you have these other beings taking some other person, pulling him down and saying, you have another purpose. There is another use for you and we are going to go about that. Mm -hmm. And then we also have Murph, whose name is a reference to Murphy's Law, which is very telling as well. What's going on, Murph? Why did you and Mom leave me after something that's bad? 
Well, we didn't. Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. What it means is that whatever can happen will happen, and that sounded just fine with us. And so we have the thesis at play. Whatever can happen will happen. Mm -hmm. And along that same line, he's saying if man throughout this movie, and specifically at the end, he's saying if man can evolve beyond our current self, it will happen. And therefore, we are already eternal right now, even if we're not necessarily interacting with ourselves. Um, And so that's his way of getting around the bootstrap paradox, is that man is already transcended in in another dimension we're already there and he's going to go through the process of what that actually practically looks like and then we also have amelia brand who represents our end game she is what we're looking to do and i don't think it's coincidence that her name is amelia Mm -hmm. which exactly amelia Earhart Mm -hmm. is a pioneer um she was a woman ahead of her time and she did some incredible things um not only for women, but for pilots. Yeah, humanity. Humanity, absolutely. And then her last name is Brand. And I think that's a statement to the branding that she's going to put on humanity because she ends up being the one who's in charge of what humanity looks like going forward. Mm-hmm. He has a right to know. That has nothing to do with it. What does? She's in love with Wolf Edmonds. Is that true? Yes. Makes me want to follow my heart. But maybe we've spent too long trying to figure all this out with theory. You're a scientist, Bran. So listen to me. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it yet. Boom. It's pretty powerful Dropping the hammer. (laughs) That's so good. And so we already, now we see very clearly her worldview. Mm-hmm. And she keeps having these conversations with Coop. Um, and even if you take his name Coop, it's like he's cooped up. Mm-hmm. He's cooped up on earth. He's like a, a bird that can't get out of his own way. He's, the cage is more metaphorical and, um, and it's something that he's placing on himself. Mm-hmm. That's his own name. That's not, yeah. that's not something, that's something he inherited. And so, now we have the stage set for love. Who is our, our symbolic person representing old, the old way, evolution? And that's when Matt Damon steps in as Dr. Man. That is his name, Dr. Yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> and so he is the embodiment of the selfish nature of evolution. <sighs> Don't judge me, Cooper. <laughs> You were never tested like I was. Human habit. You're feeling it, are you? Your survival instinct. That's what drove me. It's what drives all of us. And it's what's gonna save us. Because I'm gonna save all of us. For you, Cooper. And you can hear him at that moment, he's trying to kill someone who's actually trying to save humanity and save the earth and who's making a great sacrifice because he was too selfish to make that sacrifice himself. That was supposed to be his purpose. That, that sounds a lot like what's going on. That sounds today. so much like yeah. it. <laughs> and you see it represented in two ways. Uh, first, the planet that he's on is unforgiving. It's produced everything it's going to produce. It's a tundra. It's 
it's a desert. You can have a desert of ice. Yeah. It's, it's unbearable. It's going to bring forth nothing. And it reflects the very opening scene of the movie when they're documenting how the world gave up on them. Suddenly the dirt just kind of gave up and was no longer allowing us to produce anything at all. Mm-hmm. And that's the result of it, of how we've treated our planet and how we've treated uh, our own progress. Progress has come at the at the risk and at the consequence of condemning our future and everything around us. And I'm not saying this is necessarily my worldview. I'm not, I'm just commenting on what the the film is presenting. Yes. Um, I'm not trying to get into a global warming debate over here (laughs) because I think you could analyze it in a lot of other ways that doesn't necessarily bring global warming to play. Right. Whether you're talking about war, whether you're talking about (laughs) famine, um, and just the general selfish nature that it takes in order to live and evolve. It's all about survival of the fittest. And at a certain point, I mean, you can make the case that humanity becomes a virus and is overwhelming the earth and uh, not to pull in Shyamalan here, but the idea that the, the, the planet might fight back in its own way because maybe the planet is trying to survive too. I don't know. We don't really know what brought it up, but we do hear John Lithgow at the beginning say, six billion people on the earth, every right. single one every single one of them trying to have their way. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine it? Yeah. Um, and so there's a statement here about let's rethink what it means to progress as humanity, as uh, people. And there's a very tense moment later in the film where brand and love really face off in their worldviews. Why keep building those because he, he knew how hard it would be to get people to work together to save the species instead of themselves or their children. Bullshit. You never would have come here unless you believed you were going to save them. Evolution has yet to transcend that simple barrier. We, we can care deeply, selflessly about those we know, but that empathy rarely extends beyond our line of sight. But why? Monsters lie. Unforgivable. That's his worldview. That's mm-hmm. what he believes. That it's just the way it is. There's nothing you can do, and not for a second is Amelia Brand buying into this. Yeah. She is our salvation. She is our hope for something better because she understands something that all these other scientists and this pilot do not understand. Love is something that can take us beyond where we are and produce something even more beautiful and better. And I think that's the, that's the crux of what we're talking about here. There's evil versus good. And we've redefined it in terms of humanity and evolution. And I think there's a lot of interesting breadcrumbs that are dropped along the way. There's the bookshelf that I only ever really pick out. I think if you freeze frame it, you can read every title. Um, but I've, I've not done that. I'm just talking about what I've seen in my first, uh, two viewings and what popped out at me was the stand which is by stephen king mm-hmm. and it's literally a novel about a virus wiping out mankind and then at the end of it there's a battle between good and evil and so that's mm-hmm. front and center Boom. in the frame chew on that and then the other book is an untitled sir arthur arthur conan, conan doyle who wrote sherlock holmes and I think he's literally telling yeah. us all the clues are here. Right. You need to put it together yourself. Mm-hmm. If you can, if you can think for yourself, it's all sitting there, right there for you. And I think the pivotal moment happens um, at that point when Coop is going into the black hole. He is now making that sacrifice for humanity so that we can progress. And they summarize it really neatly by quoting Newton's third law. Ranger 2, prepare to detect. What? No! No! Cooper! Three. Cooper, what are you doing? Loose third law. You gotta leave something behind. You told me we had enough resources for both of us. We agree to that. 90%. And so he's sacrificing himself and he becomes our transition. Now we've finally somewhat killed the old way 
and he's being rebirthed. He's being renewed. And I think that has a lot to do with that shot at the end, which I think is speaking to 2001. I think there's a whole amazing breakdown we could do. The just shot at the end of Amelia? Of, what? of Coop after he gets out of the Tesseract. And oh, okay. As it starts collapsing, he says, what happens now? Yeah. Um, or something along those lines. I see. And then we cut to him in space and he's just out just there. Floating. Yeah. And that is a direct callback, I believe, to the very last shot of 2001, A Space Odyssey where you have the baby floating in space, it's regenerated and something new is happening because 2001 is addressing the evolution of mankind and which happens with these monoliths. And I think this is the Nolan's attempt to rethink that and to reimagine what that actually looks like uh, in one smaller scope mm-hmm. of humankind and, and in this smaller term. And so in order to evolve next, we must leave behind the way we've evolved this far. The film gives us this period, this ending on what was with man's explosive and selfish death. He was saying himself at the expense of every he was saving himself at the expense of everyone else because he wanted to rescue humanity even though he didn't know how. He thought, yeah. I don't know, I'll figure it out. This, your sacrifice isn't in vain. And was completely incapable of doing so. He just didn't have the tools, he didn't have the willingness to do what was needed. Um, all he really cared about was survival was per- perpetuating the way that he's always been. And this, and so we have the ending of him and it shows us what will come with Amelia pioneering a whole new brand of humanity. And I use that with the capital B she's putting her brand of love and leaving behind this old way. So consider what the new planet will look like. We'll have surrogates raising people, not of their own making. And that's a very clear cut from the way we, you mm-hmm. know, procreate right now. Um, you're more interested in looking after your own kid than someone else's. And I think that's a very rational way to be because this is yours. This is your responsibility. But now your responsibility is for other people that aren't necessarily carrying your DNA. And it's a very forward looking case that they're making. And so Coop represented this growth when he sacrificed himself. He became he who began the film on the side of practicality invoking Newton's third law in order to give Amelia the chance to start all over. He is our missing link and how we go from the past version of evolution to this whole new transcendent humanity that exists outside of space and time through his sacrifice. Mm. And so, so, so essentially it was his sacrifice out of pure love. Let's just call it that transcended the space time time paradox you were talking about at the beginning of this. Correct. Yes. Essentially. So the, the setup is through brand talking about how love transcends space and time, his act of love, sacrificing himself essentially to try to save mankind was the thing that healed the paradox. Yes. And more importantly is, it, I think it still goes back to New, uh, Murphy's Law mm-hmm. and their statement that if humanity is capable, if we can do this, we will. Everything right. else is... Because once we make it to the fifth dimension, or you can go you anywhere. You can do, go anywhere, do anything, and it's not a paradox. It's not a paradox. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think it's one of those things where it's harder to wrap your... How do you, how do you explain nuclear physics to an ant? Mm. You... You're just not capable. Well, maybe you should. Uh, you know what? I'm, uh, I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I think I there's so many other themes that kind of support this, whether you're talking about the connection between Coop and his own daughter, Murph, and how through space and time he's allowed to connect and talk with her and communicate and give her all the information she needs in order to rescue and figure out the, the science behind it. Or you're talking about the connection that brand is specifically talking about with love and the need to see the love of her life Mm -hmm. um there's so many themes of love throughout the film um and then there's also the theme of treating your planet with respect um and yeah i mean i could i I really enjoyed the the um the to play off that a little bit the uh the relationship between Murph and, and Coop. Uh, I, I have a little girl and 
in watching those those scenes like when he comes off the water planet and and watches the 21 years of uh, of of messages and doesn't see any from her um until the end of that it, it's i mean it, his it's it's his reaction to you know seeing videos from his son um which i also have a son so i could relate to that too but then he sees her and it, and it, it just reminds you that yes, you're right. I mean, we we love people that have died. How is that possible that I can still love someone that doesn't exist anymore in a physical form, or that he can love someone even though time for him is going s- slow, is going massively slow, and and he after 21 years that Murph experienced or 21, 23 years, yeah. something like that. Um, uh, there there's this connection the entire time. And this purpose of of him doing the work he was doing on on the water planet, and the purpose of her doing the work she was doing on Earth, always connect. And even though she hated him, it was so mad at him, she loved him, and that was it was prevalent through everything they did. The it entire kept time. her going the whole time. The even whole though time she hadn't talked to him, and she felt abandoned. She was so angry yeah. at him. She was also angry at herself mm-hmm. for not yeah. getting up, right, and not saying goodbye. And it, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was, uh, um, and I love that scene at, they're on the water world and you have the music is really almost a sound effect. I was going to say, talk about that. Beautiful, right? Yeah. Because you, it, you can feel time yeah. and every moment is they, precious. They use the clicks from clocks. Is that what it was? If you listen, it, it's part of the, the soundtrack yeah. on that planet to tell you every moment there is a year. You know, it is it is very important to get the heck off this planet as soon as you possibly can. And you feel it. You just yeah. anticipate when can we go? When yeah. Can we and go? when they have to sit there, um, you, do you, nothing. you're just you're hurting every second, every second. And you can see it on on Coop's face the whole time. I mean, you can see it in Brand's face, too. But but you're more you're angry at Brand at that point. I yes. was. I was yeah. very angry at Brand. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, she was doing it because she thought that she that it was important to get that because someone had lost their life yeah. for that data. But, um, but yeah, the, the music absolutely makes it. I love that you that you hit on the organ um, because it seems like every vital scene or shot has an organ in it. I mean, the, the scene where they are they are, they start spinning and they're leaving scene. and they're leaving Earth and you just slowly see it see the 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 ship start moving away from the earth as uh, and you hear that that yeah, organ going I on at first you're talking about when they're trying to do that emergency dock. No, that was the next one i was going to that i mean that scene is is ridiculous but the, every scene that's like that's vital where where something is on the line you know it has has that organ in it and so i love that you pointed that out i didn't even think about that actually it's such a beautiful tool and very thoughtful and of course the score by Hans Zimmer oh man is all time it's perfect I can sit and write and think just to that score yeah it's so incredible and another thing I love that they don't say what year it is right you kind of you kind of assume that it's in the near future because I feel like John Lithgow went through our generation you know he talks about six billion people mm-hmm. imagine six billion people yeah. we have six billion people on the earth maybe it's seven now i don't know but um and and uh he he alludes oh he i felt like there was something new made every day that's pretty much today so it feels like maybe we're moving into the next generation maybe coop is my son who's four now you know in in the next 30 years you know yeah and and but it still looks you know it they live in farms and they have they have farm equipment and they live in a wood it becomes house, the most know. important aspect of humanity at that point yeah. is trying to grow food right right but there's not you're not seeing flying cars everywhere yeah. it's, it's yeah i loved i loved that so i you could see that maybe it's today or maybe it's 30 years from now you know maybe it's right now who knows but it's true yeah and so, yeah, this is my favorite film. I think there's a million other ways that I could analyze it. And if y'all have any, any other really cool thoughts or insights, you know, drop a comment, thepestlepodcast.com slash interstellar. And that pretty much wraps it up for Interstellar. Awesome. Well, I mean, we could go 
talk for another hour. Seriously, on this I could really put together. I a could just whole... listen. I could just listen to you talk. <laughs> that was that was really beautiful. The way that you painted that. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I am. I'm really curious about analyzing it in context with 2001. I think there's some really cool stuff with that. Uh, maybe in a couple of years I'll do that. I'm I, I, every time I just I watch it, I'll find like little nuggets. It's nice mm-hmm. to see. It's nice to talk to someone that that has really done a deep dive into the the nitty gritty. Um, usually when I watch a film like this, I just, I just take it in and, and I don't always notice all of the, Oh, this shot is because of this. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to tell this story with this shot or, or with this, this thing in the frame or whatever. So it's, it's really good. Now I want to go back and watch it again. Um, with those points in mind. So I'm so tempted just hearing those sound bites. And I know what y'all are thinking. He said, he's never watched it on Blu-ray. How did he get those sound bites? I just scrubbed through. I already knew the parts that I wanted. (laughs) Oh, thanks. I didn't have to watch it. I just went, Mm -hmm. I knew exactly what I wanted and I just grabbed it. Okay. Let's not, let's not get to Don't lie. We're going to go watch it right now. I know. I'm so tempted. Come on, man. It's 11 o'clock. We wouldn't be done till like 6am. Oh man. I gotta wake up early (laughs) and I love it. Anywho, so, so you want to recommend Let's yes. your recommendations here? So I'm, I'm kind of split. Part of me really wanted to recommend staying on the sci-fi topic. I wanted to go with the day the earth stood still, the 1941 original, mm. because they're kind of tackling these, some interesting topics with humanity itself. But instead I'm not recommending that I am recommending Europa Report. Oh, nice. I, I like really it. I love that movie. I it's love it too. Low budget indie film that still has a really great story and some beautiful acting. Um, I don't I wouldn't go into it looking to watch something as grand and epic as Interstellar, but there's still a really great story and some good sci-fi elements to it that I think everyone would enjoy. I'll put the trailer on the on the page and you can check that out. Awesome. That's great. I think it's on Netflix right now, too. Is it really? I believe. Is it DVD? No. No? no. Oh, Last week's recommendation was DVD only, but I think it might still be on streaming right now. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, I ventured away from the the sci-fi genre here. Uh, My recommendation is Whiplash. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That movie is fantastic. The acting is amazing um, from everyone. Uh, the editing in particular, I mean, being a musician myself is just t- incredible. It, it, it won editing, like, yeah, it won best editing, best editing right? Yeah, and okay. that same director is clearly infatuated with music because he went on to direct La La Land, which yes. picked up well, one or two go. nominations as well, along with some awards. Yeah. Um, and the cool thing about Whiplash is that it started as a short. Well, here's what's really interesting about that, and we're yeah. totally going to cover this in a future episode. We're yes. doing, oh, we're doing it. We're doing it. Um, not next week, but in a few weeks, maybe. Yeah. And so, what actually happened was they, the director, and I can't remember his name. It's Damien of what the the film of the whole film. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm not sure. I'll, yeah. Anyway, so the director had the script. He was ready to make it, and he couldn't get any financing for it. They just didn't really believe that he could make it. Damien Chazelle. Damien Chazelle. Yeah. And so, and we probably butchered that. I'm really sorry. Probably. Yeah. If you just happen to stumble upon this. <laughs> sorry, Damien. Which is completely unlikely, but that's not going to happen. Um, and so he wanted to make this film and no one would finance it. And so in order to get it financed, he said, I'm going to make a short. And yeah. he made a condensed version. He got J.K. Simmons mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. made it. Everyone said, oh, wow, yeah, you can do this. And so. He submitted it to festivals, and while it was in being submitted to festivals, he was already geared up in making the film. And that's why he was able to release it a year after the short film came out. Yeah, that's crazy. Timeline, that doesn't yeah. happen. You can't no. do that. Yeah, absolutely. No. It, had, it had a different um, uh, main actor than Miles Teller. Yes, in and it. he's incredible. I'm really excited to do that film because there are oh, so can't many wait. cool takeaways from it. Uh, yeah. Oh, that opening scene, the slow roll in of him as he's playing yeah, the drums. And he's real, he's a real drummer. Like it has a whole jazz feel to it. It's, so it's kind of wobbly. You're moving down the long corridor. Um, beautiful. Yeah. Everything about it is so well thought out. I can't wait to talk about the, the story that the editing told. So that. if we're not doing that next week, what are we doing? Have we decided what we're doing? 
We have. We have. A, oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, uh, so next week's going to be one of my favorites, if not my favorite. So this, <laughs> when I said earlier that, that Interstellar is my favorite sometimes, it depends on my mood. My other favorite. He lied to uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, because my absolute favorite actor is in this movie is Warrior. Um, starring. Starring Tom Hardy. Uh, and it, for those of you who don't know who Tom Hardy is, climb out from under your rock um, and watch pretty much any movie that comes out now. <laughs> uh, he played Mad Max uh, in Mad Max Fury Road. He was Bane in Dark Knight. And he's, he's coming up in Dunkirk. And so that pretty much wraps it up. I would say don't forget to subscribe. Uh, Todd's going to be kicking himself. Um, what is that movie? That's going to drive me nuts. <laughs> and once again, don't forget to go to the website and check out some of the resources that we're going to link you up with. Mm-hmm. slash interstellar. Don't forget to watch Warrior between now and next week. That way you can be in on the conversation and be on strong footing. And with that, we will leave you with a quote of the day. And it is brought to you by David Fincher, who says, People will say there are a million ways to shoot a scene, but I don't think so. I think there are two, maybe, and the other one is wrong. Mm. Love it. That dude is good. This has been great, man. Thanks for all the insight. (laughs) I try. Yeah, yeah, you did great. All right, guys, we'll talk to you later. This is Todd. This is Wes. Have a good one.